Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we discuss episodes 13 and 14 of Neon Genesis Evangelion, as well as the show's use of religious imagery. We won't talk about the upcoming episodes of the show, but we will mention foreshadowing when relevant. But for now, Human Instrumentality Podcast Unit 7, launch! Episode 13, Angel Infiltration. The episode opens with Ritzko, Maya, and the command center personnel hard at work running diagnostics on the Magi. Ritzko compliments Maya's technological skills before Misato shows up, complimenting Ritzko's work. As the Magi are going into self-diagnosis, Ritsko goes into the women's restroom, looks at herself in the mirror, and notes that her mother's doing fine while she herself ages. Elsewhere, the three pilots, buck naked, enter an ultra-clean room to test uh, some sort of autopilot system. They will need to enter their plugs nude in front of each other. Much to Asuka's chagrin, the pilots begin the tests, submerged in imitation Evangelions. Misato notes that quickly the Magi are making the test. In the plug suits, the pilots note that something is off. Just then, the Magi enter an inner conflict with each other. Ritsko notices that the Magi are debating each other and notices how they reflect their creator. Misato says that she thought that Ritsko invented them, but that's false. Ritsko only brought them online. Her mother created them. Some new parts in the Magi begin to appear corrupted. The corrosion grows, but nobody seems concerned enough to stop the test. This proves to be a mistake, as alarms go off all over Nerve. Ritsko attempts to abort the test, but the corrosion keeps spreading. When the corrosion infects an imitation Ava body, it attempts to kill Masato, but is stopped and the Ava pilots are forcibly ejected. They attempt to burn the corrosion off, but it protects itself with an AT field revealing that the corrosion is in fact an angel in the form of a colony of microorganisms. For safety, Nerve is totally locked down, but Gendo orders that the public be told that the lockdown is a false alarm, not an angel attack. He then orders the Evangelians launched without the pilots in them to avoid contamination, especially Unit 1. But there's no telling how they would defeat the angel without use of the Evangelians. Bumper. Lilliputian Hitcher. Iruel, the microbial angel, is spreading like wildfire in the Ava test container, but held at bay by a layer of heavy water saturated with ozone. Misato thinks that oxygen is the angel's weakness, and the nerve team pumps ozone into the tank to try and kill it. Iruel is briefly halted and then adapts to the ozone. Its power is that, like a microbe, it quickly evolves to thrive in any new environment. Then Iruel makes its attack. It metamorphosizes into circuitry and hacks into the Magi. It takes control of Melchior in seconds and attempts to initiate a self-destruct sequence. The request is denied since the Magi are a three-way democracy, but Iruel begins to take over the next Magi, Balthazar. Ritzko orders some technobabble and manages to hold the angel off for an estimated two hours. In a meeting with the other higher-ups, Ritzko explains that Iruel is constantly evolving to surpass its own weaknesses. 
Masato suggests they destroy the Magi to kill it. Ritsuko refuses and the two lock horns. Ritsuko blames herself for the intrusion and Masato comments that she always refuses help and blames herself. Ritsuko proposes another solution, accelerating Iruel's evolution into the inevitable end of all life, self-destruction. But to do so would mean exposing Casper, the last Magi, directly to the angel. Ritsuko breaks out some power tools and opens Caspar, which is filled with sticky notes. She comments that the notes are still leftover messages from the developer, which is her mother. Tellingly, one collection of notes reads in big capital kanji, screw you, Ikari. But alongside it are various shortcuts and magi hacks, which should enable her and Maya to initiate their uh, techno babble plan. While Maya hacks sprints, Ritsuko and Misato perform physical work on Caspar. Misato remarks that Doing this work reminds her of her and Ritsuko's times in college. And then she asks for some more information about the Magi. Ritsuko explains that the three Magi are a prototype for the technology that the Avas use, technology that transplants a human mind into a living computer. Ritsuko admits that the Magi all have her mother's personality. She says this, by the way, while buzzsawing into Caspar's organic component, which is a human brain suspended in metal. Misato asks if Ritsuko wanted to save the Magi in order to save her mother, but Ritsuko says no. In fact, she never got along with her mother. She says this while she's shoving a pin wire directly into her mother's brain. Irwell finishes hacking Balthazar and initiates the self-destruct. Ritsuko, calm as a cucumber, finishes hacking Caspar one second before Irwell does and defeats it. The pilots, still naked in their entry plugs, are floating in the Geofront's lake wondering what in the hell has been going on. Masato brings Ritsuko a, uh, a cup of coffee. Ritsuko remarks that her mother called the Magi the three sides of herself, the mother, the scientists, and the woman. Those three sides constantly fought inside of her, and she used that conflict to create the democracy of the Magi. Ritsuko remarks that she can't relate to her mother as a mother, but respected her completely as a scientist. Finally, though, she hated her as a woman. Caspar was the part of her that was a woman, the part that held out to the end. Episode 14, Sele, the seat of the soul. The episode opens with a recap of the third angel Sachiel's attack from episode one. The episode continues to function using clips from previous episodes as a recap for the plot of the series up until that point. This presentation of clips is where we get the proper names for the angels thus far. Since this is a recap show itself, we're not going to double cover this portion of the episode. But a few things do come out, particularly when the members of Sele begin to speak over the clips. Sele's dialogue underlines that all the events of the show have been predicted somehow, alongside the outcomes of the different angel battles. Sele, however, are disturbed by Iruel's attack, which had not been planned for and for which they had no backup plans. We see that the recap has been presented at a meeting between Gendo and Sele. Gendo lies to Sele that Iruel never breached into nerve security. Gendo reveals that Nerve and Sele's predictions and timelines come from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Sele warned Gendo to not disobey them, leading to the bumper weaving a story. We see Rey narrating over pictures of nature. She appears to be free associating, 
before wondering if man was created by God or also by men, and says that humans are made from red clay. She eventually sees an endless train of copies of herself and wonders what she is. She identifies her body as an object, but comments that she doesn't feel that she herself is her body. It turns out that she has been attempting to sync with Unit 1. She notes that it smells like Shinji. She syncs with Unit 1 with the same sync rate that she had with Unit 0. Elsewhere, Shinji is undergoing a similar test to sync with Unit 0. He's tense and not performing as well as Ray did. Asuka, who's also in an entry plug, comments that he shouldn't get so worked up. But Misato tells her that uh, that's just not who Shinji is. Asuka, it turns out, doesn't want to pilot an Evangelion other than Unit 2. Misato notes to herself that Unit 2 is not backwards compatible with 1 and 0. Still in the entry plug, Shinji feels strange and says that it smells like Ray inside of it. Ritsuko comments that the dummy system, which is what all these tests are attempting to set up, looks like it may be ready to go. Maya is working on the test with her and says that she finds the dummy system uh, makes her uncomfortable. But Ritsuko says that backup plans are important. Maya clarifies that her complaint is moral. Ritsuko tells her that being too principled will make it harder for her to work with others. Still in the tests, Asuka messages Shinji in the entry plug and says if he's so uncomfortable, he should call his mommy and crawl back inside the womb. Misato cuts her off, and Asuka wonders aloud why everyone coddles Shinji. Inside the entry plug, Shinji forcibly experiences a vision of Rei and Ami's past, or what seems like Rei. Moments later, Unit Zero goes berserk, just as it did with Rei earlier in the series. Ritsuko wonders if Unit Zero has taken in Shinji, which she intimates has happened before. Unit Zero then tries to kill Rei, punching at glass the way that it tried to kill Gendo previously. Misato wonders why Unit Zero would want to kill Rei. Later, she meets with Ritsuko and asks if this Unit Zero incident has anything to do with the last time it went berserk. Ritsuko says that to know definitively, they would need to sync it with Rei again. Misato orders it done. When Misato leaves, Ritsuko comments that she, not Rei, was Unit Zero's true target. Shinji wakes up in a hospital bed again without memory of what happened. Alone in her bedroom, Asuka remarks that none of the adults will tell her anything about who Rei is. Elsewhere in the highest point of the Nerve Command Center, Gendo and Futsuki are playing chess. They remark that Zele are miserable bothers, but that they, the two Nerve Commanders, actually hold all the cards. Fiutsky remarks that the Unit Zero Berserker instant was not predicted, but Gendo isn't worried. Unit Zero is already resynced with Rei. In an internal monologue, Fiutsky remarks uh, to himself that Gendo is too fixated on Rei, and then vocally asks about Project Adam and the Spear of Longinus. Gendo says Rei is already carrying that part of their plan out. We then cut to an underground chamber where Ray is piloting Unit Zero, carrying the Spear of Longinus. It's the long object they retrieved from Antarctica. And that's the end of the episode. So here's some weird ones. <laughs> we intimated to this in the last episode that uh, the show is, you know, we, we've been hinting at it for a while now, I, I, I guess, to be entirely honest, that the show is taking a turn. Here's the turn. 
this is really the breaking point in the show's tonal construction. It really starts to get pretty much exclusively dark as hell from here on out. You know, we also we are sort of victims of this this structure that we've we've put for ourselves pairing two episodes together because I don't think there are, that these two episodes are necessarily meant to go together particularly well. I think that the first episode that we we're discussing here, episode 13, goes very well together with the previous episode, the one where we focus a lot on Masato and her relationship to her father, because in episode 13, we're sort of looking at an inverse of that with Ritzko's relationship to her mother. So I'd like to sort of take care of the, the plot parts of this first before we can talk about the more abstract concepts that come up especially in episode 14. Does that work for you? That works That works for me. I think it's important to cut these two episodes apart a little bit. Uh, I, I think it's also, for what it's worth, it's important to note that this is, to me, the second worst two-episode run in the series. Beyond, people remember the, my issue with the Jet Alone episode. I think that stands alone as a unique failure. But these two are a little rough. Can we agree on that? Yeah, I would agree. I think, yeah, like, I think that they're failures in different ways. Episode 13 is, I would say, an ambitious failure. It is really them trying to stretch the Ava, con the angel concept, rather, about as far as they could take it. It's the first angel that we don't see any interaction between the angel and the Avas, really, in any sort of combat. It's we basically don't really get the kids at all in this episode. It's a really interesting idea. Like, okay, how would the adults manage an, an angel problem? How would they handle, you know, an angel that's attacking as instead of using brute force, the way that the rest of them have is instead attacking like the, the nervous system of nerve in some way. And having an episode, we've never really seen this much of Ritzko in an episode before. I respect the hell out of this episode. I just don't think it makes for very good television because it's a lot of people looking at screens and yelling shit that doesn't mean anything. Evangelion has a techno babble problem. And I'm I'm not convinced that the techno babble thing is I I think it's somewhat intentional. I think that there is a message that the show's kind of trying to drive at. And I know that we're gonna get into more of that in the later half of this podcast because I think the techno babble is another way of deploying one of Hideki Anno's his storytelling strategies. He he wants to overwhelm the viewer in order to I think get you to stop worrying about logistics and stop thinking literally about the plot and start taking the effect of what you're seeing and hearing in. I think that's what the techno babble sort of meant to do. Yeah, I think the techno babble is at its best when it almost functions as like listing off different metaphors, you know? Right. When people are talking about like the absolute terror field or something like that. Like when all of the, you know, technological terms are actually describing like the character's emotional states in sort of an oblique way, that's interesting. The problem is when it's like, literally just people looking at graphs and counting out figures of numbers that just don't mean anything to the viewer when it's all like within the flow of an action sequence. And it's just a way of sort of heightening tension. I think it's fine. The problem is that this episode is almost exclusively all like almost exclusively all of the action is done through the techno babble. And 
without knowing what any of these terms actually mean, it just sort of sucks the dramatic tension out of the room entirely. The technobabble here, I think, also sort of serves to just sort of magic away the problem. Like, you've got this, like, really interesting sort of abstracted angel, and instead of exploring that possibility to, like, any sort of real extent, they just sort of instantly pivot to another hyper-abstract solution. But, like, it... Anno isn't interested in explaining to you how fucking hacking works. Like, this isn't Mr. Robot, you know, maybe to its detriment. He's more interested in, here, let me show you Ritsuko hacking into her mother's brain literally with a fucking saw. Maybe the most death metal moment in the show. <laughs> Probably not, but it's, a, it's in there. It's a death metal moment in a, in, a, in a show that usually doesn't have it on the human scale. Yeah, it's literally an artificial brain. Shouts right. out. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that I think have a lot of potential in these episodes, in this episode rather. You know, there's that scene where Ritsko is looking at herself in the mirror and remarking on her aging, which is, oh, like kind of the first like look we have into her internal psychology in a way that we hadn't seen previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has a cool mirror with the way that they defeat the angel itself is by forcing it to age rapidly mm-hmm. and like grow up and evolve and it ends up killing itself by doing so. That's a really cool metaphor. And that's a really cool way of linking Ritzko to the problem that she's trying to solve. The issue is that none of the action actively brings that theme in in any way. Like we don't see how Ritzko's feeling about her aging is reflected on her feelings about her mother in any real way or reflected in the way that she interacts with the other characters. Like how does that actually impact her as a person? That's something that we just do not really get a sense of in this episode that I think is kind of like a a failure of screenwriting. Uh, for this one for me and justice for dr ritsuko akagi is what i'm gonna call this next little segment uh because ritsuko is one of the most fascinating characters in this show in my opinion i think a lot of the show's social and and technological commentary about like what it means to be a person in the workplace and the compromising of your integrity and how you can give a little bit away and then a little bit away and then a little bit away and then producing your empty inside. I like, I think Ritzko is an amazing demonstration of all that. And you do get that in, in moments here, but the show just shafts her. I like, I, I, you know, it's, it seems almost like, Oh, well we better just give Ritzko a whole episode just because we should. Um, which is a shame, I think. Yeah, there's because so much of the action of the show centers around Shinji and the other pilots, and because those characters are living with Masato, it's just much easier to integrate Masato's story into the main story in a uh, in sort of effortless, seamless way. Whereas Ritsuko, because she, we only ever really see her at work she's often just used as a foil to Masato rather than like a central character unto herself. And I think that the show never really figured out how to comfortably integrate Ritsuko as the center of attention at any point. So she's almost always most interesting in the way that she is a contrast to other characters. The fact that her attitude towards the kids are so different than Masato's attitude, that's sort of defining to her. 
or the way that like she's used as a wedge between the Misato Kaji thing. The fact that she kind of seems to really enjoy the fact that Kaji is like a flirt and is, you know, messing up the social dynamics of the office. She seems to take like, she take that as like kind of like a fun thing rather than Misato being like all like pissed off about it. But again, all of this is contingent on the way that the other characters are acting and feeling. We don't really get a sense of like Ritsko driving the plot in any way or, you know, sort of taking center stage emotionally in the show. And I think the fact that we just haven't had that much time with her previously makes it hard for the more interesting metaphorical or subtextual stuff in this episode. It makes it harder for that to really pop in the same way. Does that make sense? I, that does make a lot of sense. In a way, it also, I think, dovetails well with Ritsko's character because I think sort of her defining her defining point, she can't relate to her mother as a woman. And like, that's sort of like the most, that's the most intimate piece of the three pieces that she herself outlines is like the rubric for someone's personality. Right. And that's the part of herself that she's a stranger to as well. She keeps everyone at a distance. Like, again, I think you get like a great, subtly emotional scene with Misato sitting next to Ritsuko, handing her the pliers or whatever, and being like, doesn't this remind you of when we were roommates? Do you remember when we were best friends? And Misato's also probably sitting there being like, well, the mage, I might nuke us in 30 seconds, so I might as well have like one moment of, of last moment of emotional relationship with, you know, the only woman my own age that I talk to really. And Ritsuko won't give it to her. Mm-hmm. Ritsuko just denies it. She denies every emotional thing in and of herself. And it's it's funny because you do get, she has the best line in episode 14 with her and Maya talking about the dummy plug system. And there's some foreshadowing there. I, these episodes spend tons of time foreshadowing oh, the dummy plugs, the dummy plugs. When are we going to see the dummy plugs? You're going to. But, you know, Maya says, I've got an ethical ob- like objection to what we're doing. It won't tell you why. You just know that she thinks it's fucked up. And what does what does Ritsko say to her? Ritsko says being too principled will make it hard to work with others. Let me tell you something as someone with a few ethical principles. That's true. Like that's that's a moment of real authorial honesty, cynical honesty coming from Ritsko as a filter. Yeah, but it's interesting, like the the lens that we're seeing that through is it sort of Ritsko admitting that she doesn't have ethical principles in some way, you know? Like she's saying to Maya, like, uh, if you keep being like a moral stick in the mud, you're not going to be able to work with other people. And I think that's kind of implying that Ritsko herself has let a certain amount of her morals fall to the side. And you can kind of see that in the show so far. Like, I think she's the most cavalier about sending the kids off to die mm-hmm. in certain missions or talking very like cynically about their chances of survival. Whereas Masato has this more like, no, we're going to take charge and fucking do this thing kind of attitude. Ritsko is always sort of to the trope of like the, you know, overly cold scientist character, you know, it, it is always treated the situations more at a remove in a way that maybe implies a certain lack of uh, ethical, uh, ethical boundaries. Interestingly, Ritsko is kind of a nerdy femme fatale. Like 
she's she doesn't have any issue with Kaji being fucking weird to her. And I didn't notice this as a kid, but like she's oddly hypersexualized in her dress for a scientist. Not that it's my place to judge, but I think the show like goes out of its way to say, isn't it a little strange the way that she like treats her position this way? Mm-hmm. And also I I let's talk just for a second. The her and Maya relationship in general. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, you can see other like mirrors that are leading up to this relationship. Like we've talked about how Misato and Hyuga's relationship is probably one where Misato is taking advantage of uh, Hyuga's crush on her. Uh And, you know, maybe in a way that's probably an HR violation. I think there's a similar thing going on between uh, Ritsuko and Maya, where Maya clearly idolizes Ritsuko in a very serious way. Like, we get a lot of that in these two episodes. Mm -hmm. And I think Ritsuko's stance on it is because she's at this weird emotional remove, it's almost like she doesn't even look at Maya as an equal in any real capacity. And it, it gives off some, like, strange strange energy definitely Ritsuko is someone who's compromised herself and and but also like all the like all the characters as like the show goes to great lengths to detail craves attention she Mm -hmm. she wants to like everyone else she wants to be adored for her genius and and like begrudgingly but honestly admit she's like yeah my greatest accomplishment Took it from my mom. I just built the fucking thing. My mom designed it. And she has to crawl in a different way than the Ava pilots do. She has to crawl inside of her mother and see her mother's secrets in in order to succeed. You know, those the sticky notes that say, screw you, Ikari, you can fill in the gaps, right? Well, I mean, we'll get into it. Like, clearly, the show putting that front and center, it's not by accident. And we'll learn more about Ritzko's relationship with her mother in a very gratifying way. But before we start talking about the motherhood theme, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about the Ritzko Maya stuff? Um, I, I sort of, I guess I wish you got more of Maya's side of it, but it, it does seem as though... I don't think Ritzko, unlike Nisato, I don't think Ritzko would have like an inappropriate Slack channel. But like, I don't want to see Ritzko and Maya at the Nerve Christmas party after they've had a few eggnogs, personally. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of what I think both of us are getting at with both of these is that there's there's some weird, uh, unrequited sexual energy from the bridge crew towards the uh, the people in command, both Misato and uh, and Ritzko. I'm really glad you brought up the. Uh, the metaphor of, you know, Ritzko literally climbing into her mother's brain um, because it's a cool mirror with something that happens in episode 14 where, you know, Asuka is saying like to Shinji, like, why don't you just crawl back into mommy's arms in reference to Ava unit zero. Now, I won't get there's it's more complicated than the way I'm laying it out right now. But also it's worth noting that inside of the uh, the Magi, when Misato and Ritsuko are talking. They're talking about the concept of uploading personalities uh, as as technology. How uh, Ritsuko's mother uploaded her personality into the three computers. And Misato is like, oh, isn't that the same technology that we're using for for the Ava? You know, like to in order to make people pi- able to pilot the Avas. And that's just a really nice pin 
to put into the, the show right there because it is really essential to all the stuff that goes on with the Avas going forward from here on out. I just like want people to think like, okay, so some sort of personality uploading is happening with the Avas, but we don't know anything about the personalities that have are being uploaded. Is that an active process? Is it something that's happened before? Uh, prior to the, sh the beginning of the show, it's a really nice piece of foreshadowing that I, I think is it can it's easy to miss it, you know, just watching the episodes as they happen. And they do tease it out in fourteen too, because I know that we didn't transcribe all of the free associating that Ray does because it's very overwhelming. It happens very fast, and a lot of its images you've seen before, and there's some new ones, and it it it. it it begs parsing out. But there is a point where, like, Ray is inside Unit 1. Ray sees the same shot Shinji saw of Unit 1 looking at itself in the reflection of the skyscraper with its mask blown off. Mm -hmm. So Unit 1's uh, organic face. And she's looking from her perspective at the reflection of Unit 1. So what I'm trying to say is, I know this is being a little oblique, uh, but... She asks at that point in time, who are you? Implying that what she's experiencing inside Unit 1 might be the personality inside Unit 1. Right? I think that it's... If you're not like an astute and focused watcher from this point on, there's a lot of the way that the show is presenting itself that could just read purely as like abstract impressionistic storytelling because we're introduced to that sequence of like Ray free associating without knowing what the fuck is actually happening. Like literally it's just like this weird, like interjection of Terrence Malick style montage and voiceover totally into a show that previously had done nothing like that. But it's so crucial that we then get a reveal that this is all happening because Ray's brain is linked up to unit one. She is experiencing some sort of psychological contamination due to unit one connecting with her brain. Um, right. Which is something that's been hinted at throughout the show so far is the idea that there is some sort of interconnection between the Avas themselves and the people piloting them. And it also sets up the, you know, the twist with Shinji trying to pilot unit zero and it not going as well. So we can, we can assume then that the Avas have different personalities. They function differently. There are fundamentally different motivations to the Avas themselves, not just to their pilots. And you get a mirror of that too, right? Because Shinji does the same sort of free associating thing inside Unit Zero. By the way, I don't mean to cut you off. I just I just really want to point this out because it to me this moment fucking uh, gets in gets under my skin. But there's a moment where he's doing the free associating interrogating dialogue thing with the images he's getting inside Unit Zero. He sees a copy of Ray. And he he doesn't ask, who are you? He's asking, who is Ray Ayanami? And then the, the vision of Ray that he sees like opens its eyes in this weird fish eye distorted way. And that's what kicks off the, the unit zero berserker mode. My interpretation of that is that the personality inside unit zero is maybe a duplicate of Ray's personality in some way or a mirror to Ray's personality. It is at least very explicitly linked with Ray. There's also that comment about the entry plug smelling like Ray, which is a weird detail. And I, I like that there's that sort of 
brief undercutting of the tension of Asuka being like, what the fuck? Like, that's like the nastiest shit I've ever heard. I don't know how clearly the show is really spelling things out about the personality of Unit Zero at this point, but we should at least, from the, from the information that we're given by episode 14, assume that Unit Zero has some sort of connection with Ray's personality that goes beyond it just being the Ava that she pilots. Correct. And first it tries to kill Gendo. Second, it tries to kill Ray. Why is it bent towards self-destruction if it itself has some sort of intimate link with Ray? Bent towards self-destruction the way that Gendo hypothesizes that Iruel from the previous episode also has a, an inescapable self-destructive tendency. Mm-hmm. But both times, Ritsko says, and I'm not sure if she's right. I don't know if she's projecting, but like her insecurities. But Risco says, she's like, no, Unit Zero wants me dead. And at this point in time, you've got to be asking, why? Yeah. What did you do to Unit Zero? Yeah. I think this, these episodes, it's, it's really tough to talk about it knowing where the show is going because it's suddenly very clear what the show is setting up to me. And it is forcing us to ask questions about the, the the true nature of the Avas. From this point on, it's really important that we start thinking critically about what the Avas are and how they were made, how they function, what their purpose is. And the show is starting to peel back the idea that it is not simply events occurring at random, that there is some sort of larger plan, some sort of larger structure that is happening as a result of Zele and as a result of Nerve, uh, do we want to sort of pivot into talking about some of the what, what is referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls, or is there anything you want to get off your chest before that? No, I think let me. I think we're mostly pretty good. I think it's worth noting that um, you know the the one thing that I did want to underline that's sort of interesting is I think episode thirteen has the most interesting bumper title. Mm. In the whole series. Okay. Um, the, the bumper title is Lilliputian Hitcher. Um, that's in English. That's not a weird translation thing. That's the that's the what Anno and team chose. For those who don't know, and I had to look this up myself, it's a reference to Gulliver's Travels. Mm-hmm. I sort of forgot that as a kid, but Lilliput is this country that Gulliver goes to where everyone is small. And the small people... This is like the big scene in Gulliver's Travels, right? Like they rope Gulliver in and nail him to the fucking ground. And he's like, oh, I've been undone by very small but intelligent beings. And I think that's what's hinting at in one episode. But then you also get the imagery of the Avas, which are huge humanoid beings. They're like shackled up, right? Like when you see Unit Zero moving forward in the next episode, it's like... It's like it's got manacles on its hands. Yeah. I didn't get that on my first on my first couple watches, but now I'm thinking it's sort of making uh, it's trying to maybe the show is trying to make some sort of parallel there. Yeah, I think that's another interesting thing about these two episodes is we get more looks at the Ava's just being weird as fuck. Like the imitation Avas that we see in episode 13, the way they're like very distinctly humanoid in a way that the the Avas really haven't been up to this point. Like mostly we've seen the Avas be robotic in imagery, except for that like hint at the, in the very first pair. But now we're starting to see them as being more fleshy, more humanoid, and we're getting a sense that they have maybe more distinct personalities than we had noticed prior to this. Uh, 
all that is is really inter an interesting turn that these episodes take. Uh, I actually want to touch on one brief thing as well during the uh, PowerPoint presentation that Gendo is giving Zele. We get some thoughts from some of the other kids that we haven't seen in a while. We get this really interesting bit with Toji where he is describing, you know, his sister's injury due to the first fight with the angel. And as you'll recall, previously he had blamed this on Shinji and, you know, had punched Shinji in the face twice about it. But now in his recollection, he's still just as angry about this, but he's shifted the blame. And now he blames nerve for injuring his sister. And I think like that's an interesting step because it means that, you know, it, it, it aligns well with what we've seen of his character so far and that he now understands that what Shinji is going through means that he's, you know, not really in control of the situation. And it's interesting that he's starting to look upwards and say, well, who is in control? Who actually did this? Who am I actually angry at? And I think it's a, it's a nice little shade to Toji's character, a character that up to this point had been kind of one note for a long time. So I'm I'm really like appreciative that that's in there. It's also that's an interesting thing, uh, you know that that they used excerpts from essays and memoirs that the children had written as part of the voiceover. And then, you know, you get sort of the equivalent of like a slow camera pan back and you're realizing that this is a fucking PowerPoint presentation that Gendo's giving right. to, to his bosses ostensibly. Right. Why does Gendo have Toji's fucking journal? <laughs> I, I, Where's he getting this? I mean, it's very clear. Like we already know that the that Nerve is running the government of Tokyo Three. We we know that the that Nerve is, has its hands in every pie imaginable when it comes to the city that they're functioning in. So it it only makes sense that they'd have access to the school records or something along those lines as well, which just adds to the creeping paranoia and lack of agency that you're going to feel, especially at the more Zele and the more Nerve. Uh, come into focus in these in the second half of the show right if we're gonna go forward i think there's there's two sort of things that we should that that bear talking about um and and one of them is maybe the sort of mystical or occult aspects of the show uh that i've sort of on purposefully been hinting at but trying to skate around but not now i feel they're inevitable what do, what do you what do you think Ian? i think you're entirely right that it's inevitable the the show now is making it very clear that there's some sort of prophetic element to the plot and to take that seriously we need to address what kind of language is being used to describe that prophecy so zele says it specifically that they're following a plan laid out by the dead sea scrolls so now we know that the christian imagery that's been used you know, piecemeal throughout the show. It is not just set dressing. The characters themselves are deliberately evoking it. So I know that you've looked into it a bit more recently than I have. So I'm curious to see what you've uncovered about this, uh, this use of mystical Christian imagery. Sure. Uh, it, it, it's probably more accurate to call it mystical Judeo-Christian imagery. And I, I'm going to give a really brief overview of this because there's people with PhDs in religion who are trying to sus still not in Evangelion, but the nature of Jewish mysticism out. It's a long, really rich tradition that I have just the faintest understanding. But I, I think it's I think it's enough for us to to sort of talk about, right? Sure. So 
we, we know the Dead Sea Scrolls are uh, religious texts associated with the Bible that were uncovered in uh, at the dead shores of the Dead Sea uh, right after World War II, correct? Roughly speaking, yeah. Yeah, I've never read. I know that now you can sort of buy translations of some of them, but I've never read the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know that Zele uses the names of these angels, Sachiel, uh, Sandal Fawn. Most of them end in L. Do, do you know what that means, Ian? I do not. I will admit. The angels have theophonic names, and a theophonic name is a, is a name that includes an archaic word for God in it. Ah, um, okay. And the suffix L in in Jewish mysticism evokes God, but it's God specifically in the sense of divine power. Right. So Elohim, for example. Elohim. Correct. Same L, right? And like we, some people have theophonic names. Michael is Mikael the archangel. Mm-hmm. We still use some of these biblical names in, in America and other parts of the world. Right. Daniel, um, Gabriel, etc. Totally. Um, Uriel, if you live in, in the right place. Uh, now we're just listing all the angels in that one Kate Bush song. Uh, <laughs> um, so Anno got all these names from the Kabbalah, which is this rich Jewish mystical tradition. It doesn't have one specific text associated with it. But as I'm looking at the main Kabbalic text that people talk about, uh, is called the Zohar. I couldn't identify that all of the angel names come from the Zohar, but I know that some of them do. Uh, they also appear in the Key of Solomon. The Key of Solomon is a book that was supposedly written by King Solomon from the Bible. It was published during the Renaissance, and supposedly it was King Solomon's Book of Spells. The reason I want to talk about this in particular is because the Key of Solomon has been widely published for a long, long time, and a lot of pop culture draws from it. Mm-hmm. The Key of Solomon refers to the whoever the spellcaster in it as the exorcist, uh, and I believe the demon Pazuzu, who's the bad guy in the exorcist, is maybe in the Key of Solomon. Um, I know that, sp- spoilers for the movie Hereditary, uh, the demons in Hereditary are from the Key of Solomon. I'm bringing this up to say that the the metaphysical Jewish mystical tradition that Evangelion draws on is not unique in pop culture and wouldn't have been totally unique at the time in Japan either. Yeah. I mean, you can probably note there's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing happening, happening a lot with like uses of Judeo-Christian imagery in Japanese pop culture. Fans of Final Fantasy VII, I'm sure, will note a whole bunch of things that are similar to the stuff that's brought up in Ava. Now, those are pretty contemporaneous pieces of, of media. You could start saying, like, oh, maybe the the producers of Final Fantasy VII were influenced by Ava, but at the very least, they're drawing from very similar sources, uh, which I think lends credence to the idea that this is not just... It, it's not... There's this idea that, like, oh, Anno is using Christian imagery because it was just, like, foreign and weird to Japanese audiences, but that's one ahistorical because, you know, Christians have attempted to colonize and convert the Japanese for centuries prior to this. And totally two, we're living in a mass media culture that would have made it very easy for someone to look all of this information up. The fact that Anno himself was able to find all of these references kind of implies that maybe it's not so out of, uh, 
the realm of possibility that other people in Japan would have also recognized some of this stuff. Totally. I think it's possible that this stuff was like a good business branding decision and also a germane creative decision. The two things aren't mutually exclusive. Precisely. Yes. Uh, I think it's worth maybe talking a little bit about like the religious ideas of the Kabbalah. And this is to the best of my understanding, but sort of the idea is that the sacred diagram in the Kabbalah, which is the first thing you see in the Evangelion title sequence, is this diagram called the Sephiroth. Um, it's what the bad guy in Final Fantasy VII is named. The Sephiroth is supposed to be a diagram that shows the pathway that God uses to continue creation. So every each one of the ten spheres on the Sephiroth has a name. Uh, they've all been used by a billion metal bands, uh, and they're all aspects of God. Like one is Jeruva, which is power and severity. One is Malkuth, which is materiality, the material world. And the idea is that creation continues along this chain continuously, and you as a human are supposed to internalize this pathway to attempt to understand how God thinks. That, like, reality is a reflection of God, and God makes the reflection that is the reality through this daisy chain of different aspects or eminences of divine power. Mm -hmm. It's also worth noting that Gendo has this exact pattern set up on the floor of his office, and we've seen it a few times in the show as a result of that. It's not just during the introduction uh, to the show, but it is it is something that we see within the show itself. Totally. And and I think this idea of daisy chains is is baked into the show's plot. It's not just set dressing. The, the idea that there's always threes, that all the generations of characters are sort of different incarnations of the same three part diagram of characters, and they're all reactions to and critiques of the previous generation. Yep, we can see that in the, there's three members of the bridge crew. Right. There's the three commanding uh, officers of of Nerve, you know, Misato, Ritsko, and now Kaji. There's three Ava pilots. There's three characters in the school that we know otherwise, the, the two boys and then the class rep. Uh, and that sort of should draw attention to maybe the idea that it's odd that Gendo and Fuyutsuki are a pair lacking a third. That should call attention to itself. Right. Zele operates. Have we seen the Zele symbol? The mask? The Zele eye mask? Um, I think we're about to. Uh, it is probably it is flashed onto the screen at, at some key moments, but it is not something that the characters explicitly have looked directly at within the show itself. Sure. So Zele's symbol is like this upside down triangle with an asymmetrical seven eyes on it. I think that's meant also to sort of like evoke the Sephiroth, even though the Sephiroth mm -hmm. has 10. So it's seven and three, which makes 10. There's all this numerology. Also, you've probably noticed that when Zele have shown up on screen, they're set up in a similar arrangement to the Sephiroth itself. Uh, just in terms of design, it's it's almost identical the way the, the characters are laid out. Right. Uh, it, it's interesting that Gendo is sort of like the link between Zele and the rest of the world. He takes he becomes part of the Zele diagram and then he takes his place on, on top of Nerve. Right. Precisely. 
The other thing that's that's worth mentioning, I think, about the Kabbalah uh, comes from Ray's vision inside Unit One. She, she makes this she makes this conversation where she talks about people being made out of red clay. It's a weird line of dialogue. Yeah, it's weird even within an already strange line of inquiry that Ray is going down. It's it's not just her doing free associating, but actually introducing new ideas into the show. So that is probably a reference to the book of Genesis, where it's said in some Kabbalistic text that uh, God made man out of red clay. Uh, but it, it's interesting in that in the Kabbalah, there's two Adams. Mm-hmm. There's Adam, the first human. And there's this idea of sort of like a platonic ideal human that sort of is made out of light and sort of floats in some other space that is separate but linked to the physical world. And that being is called Adam Cadmon. Um, and the idea is that mankind, as as God goes through the Sephiroth and and continually creates and reflects existence. The first thing God created was Adam Cadmon and Adam Cadmon is constantly in the process of reflecting into mankind. Right. So if you're putting two and two together here, and this is all stuff that's been in the show so far, so we're not spoiling anything by pointing this out, but it is crucial that nerve has been referring to Adam as the first angel. We saw it briefly when Kaji brought it to Nerve, and we saw a flashback sequence where Masato sees it as a being of pure light in the South Pole. So there's a reflection here. There's there's some sort of point being made about this difference between Adam, the first human, and Adam, the first angel, as defined by Ava. Right. And the and the Avas themselves are constant reflections of Adam. Mm-hmm. They take yes. they have the same shape. Yeah, uh, that's definitely a very good good point of reference. So so it's interesting that there may be some sort of conflation between the first man and the first angel, and which is the Evangelians. But the angels are also, as they techno babbled very importantly, made out of light and genetically nearly identical to mankind. Yes. That happened so long ago in the show and when the show felt such a different way that it's easy to forget that, but it's important not to because it actually, actually, actually will be relevant. There's another interesting thing that, that, uh, this is some foreshadowing, but there's an interesting thing that Ray observes when she's having her vision, and I believe Shinji sees it too in Unit Zero. There's a vision of a circle that's emanating, sort of shooting stars from it constantly. Yeah, it's it almost looks like it's something that like going into warp speed or something like that in a a normal sci fi show. It's like entering some sort of portal is the is the best way to describe it. Correct. I don't know that they overtly say this in the show, but there's another sort of aspect to Adam Kadmon in the Kabbalah that's relevant relevant here. Supposedly, Adam Kadmon is the is the host of all human souls that be or that have been or will be. Um, but it's not, it's not reincarnation. There's a finite amount of human souls that emanate all from Adam through what's called the quote, chamber of guff, unquote, guff, chamber of guff. I think we're just going to say guff because we're Americans. We're giving you guff. And, And the idea is that one of these souls is the Messiah. 
is is like the biblical messiah and this has like real life impacts there's people uh who are fundamentalist Christians and I think fundamentalist uh, people who ascribe to the Jewish mystical faith who want to propagate as many humans as they possibly can because every human born is one more soul that comes out of the chamber of goof that will lead to the Messiah. There's some crossover there with Mormon theology as well. The idea that the souls of there's like the pre-life concept in, in right. you know, the Church of Latter-day Saints that, you know, speculates that all of these human souls are existing outside of the world and that it's necessary to, you know, propagate and be fruitful in order to bring those souls into the realm of man. I know this probably seems like m m total mumbo jumbo to, to someone who's, who's not seen the show before and is just hearing us talk about it for the first time, but it's interesting and, and important to note that Ray is talking about, did man create man? Did God create man? Man created the Evangelions. Did man create the Evangelions? And what is the ethics of creation? And as she's doing this, she's seeing nature pristine, and then she's seeing technology, and she's seeing this image of light falling through a portal. And I think my interpretation is that that light is the, that's the souls, that's the chamber of guff. Is she's witnessing creation and wondering what is the nature of the creation of life. I, I think it's difficult to to answer any of the questions that are being presented here. The, to me, these episodes are about sort of laying out the questions that we should be asking for the second half of the show. So it's hard for me to really know where to take the conversation at a certain point. Like, I, I think that, you know, as you said, this could all read as mumbo jumbo, but in the same way that we needed to take some time at the beginning of the show to just lay out the sort of production history of anime uh, leading up to Ava. Right. Now it's important for us to lay out the sort of theological and philosophical history that the show is going to be referencing from here on out. We'll have more concrete examples of how a lot of these images are going to be actually used and what they're going to mean to the characters that we've uh, come to know so far. Uh, but I, I, I'm glad that we took this time to to lay lay this all out. Is there anything else that's like particularly relevant? There's two more little things, I think. Sure. Um, We've got to talk about the Spear of Longinus. Yes. Yeah. As as the show is sort of established in a few cutaways, we've seen it being retrieved from the South Pole. And now we know that it's at Nerve and that it has something to do with the Atom Project and something to do with Ray. I know the episode doesn't overtly like spell out that that thing she's carrying is the Spear of Longinus, but I think it's it's heavily implied enough that we can start talking about it. Um, do you know the origin of the etymology of the Spear of Longinus? So if I understand correctly, that is the spear that was thrust into the side of uh, of Jesus Christ during the uh, the crucifixion to make sure he was dead. It's the spear of Longinus is a, is like the Holy Grail is this artifact that has like tons of esoteric literature written about it involving real history. Um, Adolf Hitler famously like wanted to find it like sent SS officers to archaeological digs to find him the Spear of Longinus. Yeah, this is also not the only time that this concept has been brought up specifically in popular culture. Like I, I have a clear memory of that movie Constantine, mm -hmm. where the plot sort of revolves around getting the, you know, Spear of Longinus or whatever it's referred to in that in that movie. Uh, similarly linked to uh, Nazism and uh, occult, the occult imagery that the 
uh, that Nazis seem to have such a fucking boner for. I think it's interesting then to, to think of Zele as a fascist organization. And I think that's something the show encourages you to, to, to consider. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that that's something that I, I, you know, stepped around a bit. Like there's different ways of looking at this, like weird, sinister cabal of, uh, this weird dark UN that's existing. I think that it's, it's appealing for anyone with maybe sort of conspiratorial leanings to interpret that a whole variety of ways. But I agree that it's probably best to think of them as having, as being some sort of occult authoritarian unit. Also, it's interesting that the, the, you only see it sort of briefly, but the Evangelion's interpretation of the spear of Longinus, first of all, is too big to have pierced a, a human man's side because it's an Ava sized spear. But the other thing is it's a helix. Yep. It's, it's shape is a helix. What are we making of that? Well, I mean, the clear thing to, to connect that to would be the double helix structure of human DNA mm-hmm. uh, is the first thing that comes to mind for me. And the show isn't really going to spell out exactly, or at least so far, we don't have any kind of real linking of those two ideas. But, you know, we've been talking about the strange DNA of the angels who emerged from the same place that this spear emerged from, the South Pole. Uh, we've had conversations about what the origin of human life is. This is all relevant. This is all connected. Everything is connected. <laughs> uh, you said that there was another point that you wanted to make about some of the images that came up in the show as well. The Ray hallucination sequence is so rich in ideas, but she does have a point where she talks about the entry plug as the entrance to the heart. Yeah. What are we to make of that? So the entry plug, we've talked a lot about the, you know, in the previous episode when we talked about Masato having faith in the kids and that supplying them with the power of the AT field and that the protection that the Avas offer the pilots in some way. They, we've also known that like being in the entry plug kind of connects you directly to the Ava in a, uh, a mental capacity, but also an emotional and physical one being in the Ava. It sort of, you're suddenly exposed to the feelings of the Ava itself. And so far we've only really seen that in terms of synchronization with it or some sort of logistical sense, but we should maybe start thinking of it more and more as something more abstract, more emotional, uh, and less physical. So when you are inside the, the entry plug, you are physically inside the Ava, but perhaps you're also emotionally inside of the world of the Ava. And that is going to become more and more relevant as the show goes on. I think that's basically what's being set up in that uh, psychedelic sequence. I think maybe this is your first hint at where Maya's ethical problem with the dummy plugs comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if, if if the entry plug is the, is the entrance way to the heart, then literally what Ritzko's doing in this episode is taking people outside of their place in other people's hearts and swapping them around to see what fucking happens. Right. And in episode 13, it was alluded to that there's some sort of autopilot program being experimented with. Right. So how do those things interact? You know, who 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 does that hurt? Who does that help? It, it, it's remarkable how good a job they do set for, for, you know, for there's always the Evangelion argument that the show's sort of slapdash, that it that it it uh, started running out of money. They didn't know what they were doing. He's just free associating Two, I reject that argument in part because 
there are so many little blocks that are being very carefully set up, even as it's using footage from previous episodes. And like the dummy plug system is very, very carefully set up. Yeah, the show absolutely knows where it's going. I think that now we're starting to see some legitimacy to the the critique of, you know, it's not just that the show is reusing older clips, but there's even sort of like patterns of uh, animation that are really, really similar to stuff that we've already seen. Like some of Misato's reaction shots in these two episodes are literally the same ones that we've seen from older episodes. The whole sequence of Unit Zero going berserk same camera angles, same movements as the first time Unit Zero went berserk. There's they probably just colorized the cells. Yeah, it's. I think that's that's exactly what they did, which to me does lend some credence to the idea that they're maybe starting to like penny pinch a bit in the animation department. Uh, well, f- to a purpose, to an end. Like it's not artistically invalid, but it is n- noticeable in a way that's some that it hasn't been up to this point. I think it's worth noting for people who aren't maybe familiar with anime that at this particular moment in time, there is sort of like a history of the mid-season clip show episode. I, I, I'm I not certain if that's like a network dictate, but that is like a thing that is common, especially in like 26 or 52 episode anime seasons where it's like halfway through, uh, in case you missed and have started since the beginning, here's your catch up. I believe it is a way to alleviate the budget too, but it's interesting. The whole episode isn't clips because there's other shows that do that. They were like the whole 20 minutes would be clips. This is like half clips and half a lot of used footage, but adjusted differently, maybe to make some sort of artistic point about recurrence as opposed to just like, all right, here's more of the old fucking budget, you know? Totally. Yeah. I, I don't mean to, denigrate the quality of the show by making that uh making that point it's just almost more useful to look at it as an artistic choice i think that's what i'm going to try to do from here on out i'm going to make note of when it's maybe there are some issues in terms of the animation process clearly the show does kind of get a bit tight around the edges in a way that i don't think was necessarily the intention going in but since it's the show that we have I think it's important to take all of that stuff seriously on an artistic level, thinking this is what they did with the budget they had, whether that's their plan initially is to to me less interesting than the results that we get. We do know a little bit about what was going on with the production of the show around this time. If you feel like we've got time to talk about it, if we don't, there's, there's, there's further episodes, but we're going to have a lot to talk about in the future. I, I think we've we've covered a lot today, uh, so I would like to save that for future episodes. Um, thanks for bearing with us on this very strange pair of episodes of Evangelion. Uh, I know that we've been sort of up in the clouds for a lot of this one, but I swear it's all coming back down to earth in a serious way soon. Oh, so, it's coming back down for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we'll come back down to earth with it. We're going to get into all, a whole bunch of really interesting shit in the second half of this show. And maybe we'll be able to sneak in a bit more fan service for you as well. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at another Avapod and on Instagram at human instrumentality pod. 
extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.